Well, good morning. We come to another uh, challenging passage this morning. It turns out that the Bible has a lot of those. Mark Twain put it this way. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. I feel like almost every other week, especially lately, I've told the staff, well, we have another heavy passage this week. And I guess that makes sense though, right? Because life is heavy. The world has fallen, Satan is real, the Bible is true, eternity is long, and so we plow on with whatever God has for us. We're journeying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been in a series here in 18 and 19 of Matthew about being re-educated in the values of the kingdom. Jesus has been preaching the kingdom, he brings the kingdom, the rule of God on earth, and it is slowly, progressively invading and conquering and colonizing and transforming the world. Back in chapter 12 of Matthew, Jesus said that he's cast out demons by the Spirit of God, showing that the kingdom of God has come upon you. That same chapter 12 says he's bound the strong man and now he's plundering his house. And it all starts very small and slow like a little mustard seed that ultimately grows to the largest tree. So King Jesus forgives his people by faith and then he forms a people who put that rule, that kingdom, into effect. So the church... The people of God, we're a sign of the kingdom, we're a foretaste of the kingdom, we're an outpost of the kingdom, an instrument of the kingdom, a poster for the kingdom, a preview, ultimately of the new creation, a community that shows forth his sovereign rule over all areas of life. We're to model to the world what it means for us to be a people who live in the world in obedience to the king who saved us. So by our lives... We show forth his values. We witness his sovereign reign overall. Here's how J.I. Packer puts it. He says, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. And so we've been covering these values of the kingdom when it comes to various things like the congregation and sin in the church and forgiveness and marriage and divorce and singles and children and now money. We've moved from congregation to the home to the bank account here in Matthew chapter 19. If you're borrowing one of our Bibles, it's page 774. And the main point is that we must be re-educated in the values of the kingdom of Christ regarding money and wealth and possessions. And we need to see that Jesus is better than wealth. So let's consider two points, the example of the young man and then the lesson for disciples of Jesus. So first, the example of the young man. Look with me there in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. This is the word of the living God. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You should love your neighbor as yourself. So here we have this wealthy man. He approaches Jesus and he asks, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And this verb here for do, what must I do? In Greek, it's what's called an aorist subjunctive, which can suggest like one great definitive deed. What one thing must I do? And in that day, almsgiving, giving to the poor, was considered the most outstanding good deed. And so this guy may have hoped Jesus would just request a donation. I can write a check. 
plenty of money. So he may have been looking for a number. We don't know exactly, but Jesus replies, well, only God is good. All goodness is on loan from the wellspring of goodness. And his answer to the young man may startle us. He says, what? Keep the commandments. Do the commandments. And that may jar us as good Protestants, but we've got to remember that True faith by which we're saved, we're justified, as our New City Catechism said, declared in the right by faith and faith alone. But true faith never stays alone. And we've seen again and again that in the Gospel of Matthew, we know the difference between true and false faith by obedience. You'll know them by their fruits. So doing is a very good thing. It's not suspect at all in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, we'll be flipping back and forth from Matthew 19 to the Sermon on the Mount quite a bit this morning. And remember, if you want to go ahead and flip back to chapter 7, notice how Jesus lands the plane on the most important sermon ever preached with this same emphasis on obedience, on doing. The proof is in the doing. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus is closing the sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Doing is really important. According to Jesus. In fact, just in the Sermon on the Mount, that very verb is used 22 times in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. And so Jesus tells the young man to keep the commandments. And he explicitly mentions several of them. The sixth commandment, seventh, eighth, ninth, fifth. And then the summary command of love of neighbor. Jesus focused on what's been called the second table of the law. The, the commandments focusing on human relations. Look at verse 20, Matthew 19. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus says, keep the commands. This man's way too self-confident. He thinks he's good, but Jesus knows this young man's heart. He knows that his heart is divided. He knows that this man loves his stuff. And when it comes to wealth, you can't have a divided heart. It's Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus knows that's what this young man's trying to do. So Jesus says to him, and by the way, this, this, these two words, to him, it's emphatic. It's front-loaded. So the order of Greek is often different from the order of English and usually for emphasis. And so if we were to read it real rigidly, it would say like this, said to him, Jesus. So Jesus knows this particular man's idol, just like he knew the idol of the woman at the well. Do you remember that? What did he tell her? Knowing her heart. 
go, call your husband and come here. So Jesus knows this man and he knows that his heart's divided. And Jesus says, if you would be perfect, sell your stuff, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This word for perfect, it doesn't mean without sin. It doesn't mean totally flawless like usually we think of when we hear the word perfect. The word is teleos. We've seen it before. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus used the same word in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The whole Sermon on the Mount in some ways is about heart righteousness instead of just merely external righteousness like the scribes and Pharisees. And notice what Jesus says there in 548, speaking to his disciples, you you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Again, Jesus doesn't mean without fault, that would be nobody. What he's talking about is undivided devotion. You must be wholly devoted. Look back at chapter 5, verse 20. Tells the disciples, tells us, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, were the, externally, we're the holiest of the holy. So what's going on here? Again, Jesus is saying, I'm not so much concerned about your externals as your internal. That's the perfection I'm looking for as someone who walks the walk and talks the talk. He knows this guy lacked that. He wasn't wholly devoted. He was divided. He may have had some external things right, but he didn't have a heart for the Lord. This guy had the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, but he didn't have heart righteousness. So Jesus goes for the jugular, his stuff, sell it all. Now, does this mean that we all need to sell all of our stuff? I don't think so. There were lots of disciples in the New Testament who didn't sell everything. In the first century, they had to meet in homes. So we know that Christians had homes spacious enough to fit 30 or 40 or more. We know that Paul needed funding. The whole, book, the whole letter to Romans is really a missionary support letter looking for funding to get to Spain. In the very context here, what have we just seen the last few weeks in Matthew chapter 18? Family and children and marriage. And so... We've got to provide. Fathers are called to provide for their family. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.8 says the father who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. But we need to hear this. Family and children are the most common excuses for accumulation. And so we need to check our hearts. Jesus didn't issue this same command from many of his disciples, but as one commentator put it, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. So Jesus knew what was going on with this specific young man, which is why he has this specific demand. He knew that wealth was his his idol. This man had great possessions. He had many things. He was preoccupied with having. Do you notice that in verse 16? What must I do to have eternal life? And then the story ends in verse 22. He had many things, same word. He's preoccupied with the self. The truth of the matter is that he didn't have possessions. Possessions had him. He's a violator of the first commandment and the 10th commandment. He wants more greed, covetousness, so much that wealth and possessions has replaced God, the first commandment. He's weighed in the balance and found wanting, and so he walks away sad. 
it hurts to get kicked in the idols. This is the only time in the gospel that Jesus has called to discipleship is refused. Every time he calls, immediately they drop what they're doing and go. But this man walks away sad. He rejects the call of Jesus. Why? Because money is so powerful. As the American proverb goes, it's hard to have a great estate and not fall in love with it. It's doable, but it's hard. That's why 1 Timothy 6.10 says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we see that in the New Testament. Just think of Judas, Ananias, Sapphira, money, wealth, and possessions. It has this powerful potential to draw us away from the living God. You remember the parable of the soils? It's back in Matthew 13. We covered that in 2002. <laughs> Notice what one of the reasons, chapter 13, verse 22 as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. It's deceitful. It'll choke out the word. And so we've got to be on guard. Unlike this young man who shows initial interest and then he walks away when Jesus demands his all. So the story of the young man, and then second, what's the lesson for us? Look at verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Maybe you've heard about this gate in Jerusalem. So there's the larger gate in Jerusalem. And then there's this smaller gate in Jerusalem. It was called the needle's eye. And so you would, camels could get through, but it would be hard. And so they would have to bend, they'd have to scrunch down. You know, you have to get on your knees to enter this gate. You have to often get rid of your baggage, leave the baggage behind to enter this gate. It's just a little more difficult. Totally made up. No such gate exists. Complete fabrication by Bible teachers who want to evade this text. Pure speculation. Jesus is talking about camels, actual camels, and an actual needle. Camels were the largest Palestinian animal, and the eye of a needle is the smallest opening one could think of. In other words, what he's saying is here, it's not difficult and you've got to pray and lose some stuff. It's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom. And listen, in this room, comparatively, we're all rich. The moment we step foot on a third world country, we see that we're millionaires among peasants. Verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The disciples respond rightly. If that's true, who can enter the kingdom? Well, Left up to us, not a soul can enter the kingdom. None can be saved if left to ourselves, but with God, all things are possible. Salvation is of the Lord. See, before Christ, we're all bent on our own idols. We're all bent on functional saviors, false gods, whether it be money like this guy or maybe it's looks, popularity, food, comfort, Power, lust, we can make anything into an idol. And in this room, it's usually the good things. John Calvin said that the human heart is a veritable factory of idols. 
We just keep making them up. Before Christ, we were idolaters. Before Christ, we were dead in sin. Not just sick, we were dead and only God can raise the dead. Our only hope is the sovereign grace of God. Look at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father, father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter's like, look, we've left it all. Left it all, what do we have left? Which is actually not quite true. Remember in chapter 18, Peter did hang on to his house. So he hadn't left it all or his spouse or his mother-in-law. But he's still self-focused. Well, what will we have? We're better than that guy. But Jesus tells him, you're going to be compensated quite fairly, actually unfairly, way more than you deserve. And he says, in the new world, disciples of Jesus will rule with Jesus and judge Israel. He says, in the new world, other translations, the New Living Translation says, when the world is made new. NIV says, in the renewal of all things, King Jimmy's a little more literal, it's in the regeneration, the regenesis, the new genesis, the new creation, Eden 2.0. It's good to remind ourselves that the Bible doesn't go from Genesis 3, sin, to Revelation 20 and end right there. It goes from Genesis 1, God's good creation, and ends in Revelation 21 and 22, the new creation. God doesn't discard this world. He created good and he will make it good once again. Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus comes and brings the kingdom and the kingdom of heaven is not about people going to heaven, but the rule of heaven coming to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isaiah promised a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. At the return of Christ, God's going to renew, restore, redeem, resurrect the whole cosmos. Here's how Acts chapter 3 puts it. He must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things. As God promised long ago through his holy prophets. That's why Jesus back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 verse 5 says, The meek shall inherit the earth. So we shouldn't speak of the end of the world. We should speak of the renewal of the world. Our end goal is actually not heaven. That's just an interim stop along the way. Our end goal is a new heavens and new earth. This world redeemed and resurrected bodies. As we sing, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So Jesus will restore the world in the new world. And he'll rule over all. He's ruling now at the right hand of God. But in that day, Jesus will be openly enthroned and acknowledged as king by all. And not only that, he says he's going to share that rule. We'll reign with him. He says, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. We will reign with Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The disciples will rule with Christ. And the first order of business here is the judging of unbelieving Israel. 
The followers of Jesus will sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus says. That's why way back in chapter 4, he chose 12 disciples. 12 tribes, 12 disciples. He's gathering true Israel around himself who will judge counterfeit Israel. And how do we know who's true and who's counterfeit? Faith in Jesus, faith in Israel's Messiah. That's why in the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus comes and he says, I came to my own people, but my own people did not receive me. But to whomever did receive me, I give them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The true people of God will be vindicated over against those who deny the Messiah. This would be especially encouraging to these first disciples who were persecuted from city to city by unbelieving Israel. Vindication is coming. And really we have a theme that's going to take us through the rest of this gospel. Jesus versus Jerusalem. Christ will warn and Give woes to unfaithful Israel. So chapters 21 all the way to 24, most of our fall will be parable after parable and woe after woe against unrepentant Israel. And so the church will judge Israel. But not only that, everyone who's left anything, property and family for the name of Jesus, they will be rewarded. They'll receive 100 fold and they'll inherit eternal life. The call to Jesus, he's saying, it'll be worth it, Peter. Have the long view. You need to transfer investments here and you need to expect dividends, exponential returns. So Jesus wants you and I to be motivated by eternal reward. I wonder how often reward makes it into your mindset in your day-to-day living. He mentions it eight or nine times in the Sermon on the Mount. Flip back there with me. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Are you living for that day? Are you living for reward? Look at chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for, this is a commandment here, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, that was the problem with this young man. He chose earthly reward over heavenly reward. What did Jesus say? Back in 19 verse 21, if you'd be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He had his eye on the wrong reward. He was thinking about just this world and not the world to come. He had really short-sighted vision. C.S. Lewis said that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We choose great value beef over Perini's Steakhouse. Choose Corpus Christi over the Bahamas. We choose Dr. B over Dr. Pepper. We go away sad because at the end of the day, we believe that, we believe the lie that this world is better than Jesus. As we just saying. Take this world and give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. So do we believe that Jesus is better than stuff? Do we believe that Jesus is better than wealth? You have to or it'll get into your heart. Jesus says, money leads, hearts follow. That's what he says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Money leads, hearts follow. 
That's why John Wesley said, money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. And you all know how this works, right? Just think of your last big purchase, whatever it was. It's all relative. What was your last big purchase? So much more goes into that than just the initial purchase price, doesn't it? You become invested in more ways than just the price. You must rearrange it. Maybe you replace. Got to protect. Insure it. Accessorize it. Clean it. Maintain it. Repair it. Money leads. Hearts follow. Jesus is better than wealth. And listen, friends, that ought to be evidence by the way we live. Remember back again, Sermon on the Mount, we are to be the salt of the earth. We're to be distinct. We're to be the light of the world in the midst of darkness, city on a hill. We're to look different. And we ought to look different by the way we use our money. Do you look different because of the kingdom of God? Listen again to C.S. Lewis. If, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I worry that too many American Christians never even wrestle with that pinch. We ought to look different. Luther, Luther used to say that you can tell a Christian from a non-Christian by the way he uses his zipper and his wallet. A lot of truth there, especially in our day and age. So let me just ask you, is Christ Lord over your money? Frankly, many Christians who profess Jesus as Lord don't act like it. In 2007, a big Barna study showed that only 5% of adults tithed, gave 10%, only 5%. And out of that lump sum, evangelicals, those Bible-believing Christians, only 24% tithed, gave 10%. National averages are consistently that evangelicals give 2.6% of their income to the church. 26 According to health research funding, if every Christian tithed, gave at least 10% of their income, faith organizations would have an extra $139 billion annually. They show also that U.S. Christians collectively, U.S. Christians collectively make $5.2 trillion every year. Nearly half the world's total Christian income. I mean, just imagine the amount of ministry that could be done if evangelicals gave 10% of their income away. I mean, I just think about our own church. Imagine the ministry we could do, the missions we could fund if every member simply tithed. One commentator writes this, true Christian stewardship will examine mortgages, credits, giving, insurance investments, and a whole host of areas of life not often brought under Christ's lordship. And listen, at Southside, we talk about giving a lot. So if you're a guest, uh, we talk about money a lot here. Here's why. Jesus talks about it a lot. 
He talks about money and possessions and wealth more than he talks about heaven or hell. And listen, I know that can be abused. Oh, great. Here's this preacher talking about money again. I know there is abuse. Absolutely. There is a, a false gospel called the prosperity gospel that says you ought to be healthy and wealthy. In fact, maybe y'all saw a couple of weeks ago, this Brooklyn prosperity preacher, this name it, claim it, blab it, grab it type guy is preaching in Brooklyn during the service. <laughs> There's a video. I laughed hard at it. I shouldn't, but I couldn't help it because these guys are charlatans. But during his service, a couple of thieves came in and robbed him. He lived, they didn't shoot him or anything, but robbed him and his wife during the church service. They came away with over $1 million worth of jewelry. Unless you're tempted and you're going to go after me and my first lady here, I've got about an $80 citizen watch on. You're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> to be faithful to Jesus, though, church has got to talk about money. Why? Because Jesus says money and the heart are intimately connected, maybe more than anything else. But it's not just money alone that's the issue, right? That's what Jesus gets at. He gets at the heart. It's a heart issue. A medieval Christian thinker named Bede said that if you can, you, you can have money and not love it. And you can love money and not have it. You can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. <laughs> as Vody often says. So it's not just money, it's a hard issue. You can have money and not love it, and you can love money and not have it. The church needs wealthy members. Ministry and missions takes lots of money. In fact, you can do very little ministry or missions without money fueling it. So the church needs wealthy people. The church needs rich people who are rich in good works. The church needs people with great treasures who value heavenly treasures over earthly treasures. And so we talk a lot about money. We talk about giving here. We talk about giving systematically, giving proportionally, giving sacrificially, and with a smile. Because the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. And that sacrificial part is where I think Jesus would press us this morning. It means it's got to hurt. That's what sacrifice means. They're the words of Lewis. There, there must be a pinch. We must be hampered in our life because of our commitment to kingdom generosity. And so in light of this passage, every disciple has got to examine ourselves. Got to look at our budget. The first step, I think, of application is to get a budget if you don't have a budget. It's hard for Jesus to have dominion over your money when you don't have dominion over your money. You need to know where it's going. And we've got to examine ourselves. In our age of affluence and the, the main idols of consumerism and careerism and materialism, we need to ask hard questions of our lives. How are we doing? How am I doing here? Maybe I need to up my percentage of giving. Maybe we need to downsize. Maybe we need to ask if we need to make an economic change in order to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. I don't know what it means for you, but if we're not asking these questions, if, we're, if there's not some tension in our life, we're probably not being faithful in our day and age. There is an inseparable economic component to discipleship according to the teaching of Jesus. Jesus calls us to reorganize our lives. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Seek first his rule, the Lord will take care of it all. Flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter 16. This is really no different than his fundamental call.
What is the fundamental call of Jesus? Chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The call is a call to self-denial. It's a call to sacrifice. It's a call to die to self, take up a cross, the instrument of execution. We say no to self and yes to the Lord. We don't try to save our lives but we lose it for the sake of Christ and there we truly find it. We don't try to save or spend all our resources, but we lose them for the sake of Christ and there we find treasure in heaven. That's the thing, that's the beauty of the Christian faith is that at the end of the day, Jesus is after our joy. Jesus wants this man and he wants us to turn from mud pies in the slum that we might have a holiday at the sea. Jesus is better than wealth.